0: He is risen. He is risen indeed. Yeah, we can clap for that. That's a good thing. That is the single most significant sentence that has ever been spoken. He is risen. It is the fact of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead that is actually the source of all hope that is real. That is all real hope. You can trace back to the empty tomb of Jesus. I love the song that we sang earlier. Because he lives. You know, sometimes, isn't it true, there's just no school like the old school. And to go back to that hymn, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. What an amazing, amazing declaration of hope. Easter, more specifically, the empty tomb of Jesus Christ is it's the hearth of hope. The the empty tomb of Christ, this hearth where the the fires of our hope were lit and and then kindled and fanned into a flame. It's it's the hope of heaven, the hope of Christ that drives our day in and our day out as we live in this hope, as we live it out in everything that we do. And, And it is ultimately the hope of Easter that drives us, to the ultimate fulfillment of our hope when he returns and makes everything that is wrong right again. When he brings his people, his followers, his believers into forever fellowship with him. This is the ultimate end game of this amazing thing called hope. And it all started, it all focuses and finds its reality in the empty tomb of Jesus. And I want to be very, very clear on this Easter weekend. This is not a metaphor. This is not some kind of a, you know, spiritual allegory where we tell ourselves that, you know, he rose from the dead and so we can meet any challenge. You go get him, buddy. No. This is a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth hung on a Roman cross and he died on that cross, becoming our sin, the Bible says. He took on your sin. He took on my sin. And then he was laid in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he did indeed rise from the dead. This is the central fact of our faith. This is the hearth of hope. You know, when I think about a hearth, I honestly, I don't think about Easter. When I think about a hearth or, or a fireplace, you think about Christmas, right? Right? You know, especially here in Texas, when the when the temperatures plunge into the 70s and and it's Christmas time and we have to turn on the air conditioner to make a fire in the fireplace worthwhile, and I remember, as I was preparing for this message on hope and Easter, I, I thought about a Christmas that happened years and years ago in our household. Emily and Joseph were probably in in elementary school at the time, and we had gone all the way through the holidays. Julie had decorated the house, you know, bows of holly and all that kind of good stuff. And we had gone through the holidays, opened the Christmas presents, had all of our Christmas services, even taking a little time to go to Mississippi and see her family. We've come back. And just before the new year, we decided, you know what, let's just take down all of the decorations. This is going to be a family experience and an event. And so we had a fire going in the fireplace and we began to take down all of the decorations from Christmas. Julie was taking down the the ornaments off of the tree, kind of making sure they were safely tucked away very meticulously. I, on the other hand, do not do do meticulous very well at all. Anything that was fragile, Julie was like, hey, I'll I'll do that. I got that. Don't worry about it. And so we kind of got to the end of the evening. The Fire was still going in the fireplace and we had everything put away in boxes, trash bags, everything. But there was one thing left out. Julie had put some live garland on our mantle. And this was back around Thanksgiving or so. And All of the trash bags were full. I thought, what are we going to do with this live garland? You can't put that out with the Christmas tree necessarily on the street and have the city pick it up. And I went, I know what I'll do. We've got a fire going in the fireplace. I'll throw that garland into the fireplace. Super smart. And so I bunched up this garland that had been hanging in our house for about six weeks and kind of bundled it up in my arms. And I said, hey, kids, stand back. Dad's about to do some dad stuff. And oh, I, I was about to do some dad stuff too. So I threw this garland into the fire. The fireball that went up our chimney was biblical in proportion. <laughs> it was like boom When that tender, that dry tinder, hit the fire, but that wasn't the real problem. The real problem was that as I had thrown this bunch of garland into the fire, some of it had kind of unspooled as I threw it and so it had a little tail dragging into the living room that quickly became a fuse like for Mission Impossible. And the fireball went up the chimney, but then all of a sudden fire started just following the trail of Garland into the living room. The children were standing behind me horrified, (laughs) scared to death. Julie was standing off to the side going, we're going to burn the house down for New Year's. And as the dad, dad, you'll you'll, you'll know where I'm coming from on this one. I was like, I got this. I meant for that to happen. So I started kicking the the garland back into the fireplace. I grabbed the shovel from the fireplace tools and get everything back in there. And and the fire is raging inside the fireplace. And I looked at Julie and I went, you're welcome. (laughs) But I thought about that when I thought about Easter. Because when the hope of heaven is ignited in your life, you cannot contain it. It will, in fact, spill out into the living room's of your life, it will light up your world where you live, the people that you touch and come in contact with. It is literally contagious when you start to consider hope, the hope of heaven, the hope of Easter. And I think this is probably as good a place as any to just acknowledge the fact that we are living in a hope-starved world. Don't we need some hope? Don't we desperately need to have something that is real that we can cling to and hang on to that we can keep moving when everything is so chaotic throughout our world? We have this hope that is rooted in the reality of the resurrection. We have this hope that God has given us. As a matter of fact, Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, he takes this idea of hope, the hope that that drives us in our day to day, And he draws a direct line back to the empty tomb, back to the hearth of hope. And he does it this way at the very beginning. This is in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 18. But watch what God says through the pen of the Apostle Paul. He says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope that he has given to those he called. His holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power. Say power. Power. For us who believe him, this is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. You see what Paul's doing here? He, he's, he's saying, I want you to know I want you to experience, I want you to live in this confident hope, this hope that is rooted in the reality of the resurrection. There is hope because there is Easter. Easter is there because of hope. And it is in Easter that we have the hope that we need. Now, it has famously been said, of course, that hope is not a strategy. And that's usually said by type A men, that as a general rule. Hope is not a strategy. And that's true, hope is not a strategy. But by the same token, hope is not just an emotion. Hope is not just, you know, sending positive energy out into the universe. Hope, this hope, is real. It is rooted in Christ. It is rooted in the resurrection. The book of Proverbs says something fascinating. It says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. Isn't that the truth? If you've been hoping for something for a long time and it just doesn't ever seem to happen, it never comes around, that, that, you, you start to understand the disappointment, the, the heart sickness that the Bible talks about. On the other hand, if you have a hope or a dream or a vision that, that you've prayed about, that you're collaborating with God on and you see it come into fruition, a tree of life, man, that, that just, just breathes life into your life. Isn't that true? Martin Luther was a Catholic priest who lit the fuse on the Protestant, the Protestant Reformation in 1517. And Luther said this. Luther said, everything that is done in the world is done by hope. Think about that for a second. It's true. Everything that is done in the world is done by hope. Marriage is hope. When you get married, you know, unless your parents are making you do it, you hope it's gonna turn out Okay. If a dating life, your dating life, that's an expression of hope, isn't it? That, that we hope, and then not necessarily that you're gonna marry that person, but that at the very least they're not socially awkward and living in their mother's basement. Hope, you start a business, hope. You study for a test, hope. You launch a church, hope. Having children, hope. Well, now, let me say this, technically, you can have children without hope, but I don't recommend it. It would not be nearly as much fun. Hope is a big, big deal. Hope, hope is the heartbeat of the Christian life. It's what it means to have a relationship with Christ. That's why religion on its own falls so, so short. There's no hope in religion. There's no hope in ritual and rules for the sake of ritual and rules. But in a relationship with God, with the Son of God, the creator of everything— there is hope available to every single one of us. And isn't it also true that sometimes hope can be hard? Sometimes hope it is hard to come by. Now, sometimes it's not because of the circumstances. It, sometimes it, we, we, we approach hope differently based on kind of how we're wired up in our personality types. My personality as a general rule, I'm very hopeful. Like I, I tend to think everything's gonna be fine, we will figure it out, we will get through this. Now, I'm, not, I'm not like denying reality, but I, I just, I kind of tend to be a hopeful person. Julie says this about my personality being hopeful. She says, Mac, I am so glad you don't gamble. Because if you were a gambler, you would always be thinking you are one bet away from just turning it around and we would be broke. That's my personality. Others of us here in the room, maybe you're not like that. Maybe you're, The whole time I've been talking about hope, you've kind of been thinking to yourself, that is really cute. Hope, <laughs> whatever, okay. Maybe we can talk about reality at some point, preacher. And listen, people like me need people like you in my life. We need those realists in the world to keep us tethered to reality. Again, Christian hope, the hope of heaven is not Pie in the sky, Pollyanna, just sit around hoping against hope, just hope everything works out. That's not what this is. This is active, engaged belief that God will use whatever circumstances I'm in for his glory and my good. Webster defines hope like this. Webster says that hope is desire accompanied by an expectation of or a belief in fulfillment. It is a desire accompanied by an expectation of or a belief in fulfillment. I like that. There's an expectation that, that this will work out. I may not know how, but I believe because Christ rose from the dead, there is nothing in my life, there is nothing in this world that is beyond the scope and the reach of his power. There's nothing that is beyond the scope of hope in Christ. And that is a powerful thing for us to take from this Easter, to understand that. But again, sometimes hope is hard. We, we know statistically that those folks who were born between 1997 and 2012, those that are referred to as Gen Z, th- this generation of folks has never known a world without terrorism, economic meltdown, Social media toxicity, racial unrest and upheaval, social change and unrest and upheaval, and and political rancor, the likes of which most of us have never seen. And, And so I understand how, for this bunch, especially, hope is hard to come by. We know that statistically, Gen Z is more pessimistic about their future than their parents. This is the first generation in history that thinks they will not have it better than their parents did. The first generation ever. And I, I got to tell you, I understand why that's there, but I also want you to know it doesn't have to be that way. I also want you to know that we have a hope that is bigger than our circumstances. We have a hope in the reality of the resurrection of Christ that transcends circumstances. It's fascinating to me that in the last 10 to 15 years, psychologists have begun to study the psychological and physiological effects of hope in our lives. And and what they're finding is absolutely fascinating. The results of this research actually are affirming what God has been saying for thousands of years about hope. Researchers are finding now that those who have hope have longer, healthier lives than those who don't. Those who have hope respond to disease prognosis much, much better. Those who have hope have healthier, happier lives than those without hope. And so we see science beginning to catch up to God, beginning to affirm and recognize what God has already been saying, that that this hope does in fact make a difference. And what's interesting to me is that the social sciences have identified three components for hope to survive in the wild. In in order for hope to continue and to carry on, these components have to be there, and they are absolutely recognized in this passage of Scripture that we just read and really throughout the entire Bible. The first thing that that psychologists will tell you that God has already said is that in order for us to to have hope, you have to have purpose. Purpose. There has to be a purpose to hope in, to believe in, to drive you. That's exactly what Paul was talking about here. What did he say? He said, I hope that your eyes are enlightened. I hope that you understand the confident hope he has given. Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a future and a hope. Matter of fact, I want you to turn to your neighbor and with Easter enthusiasm, tell him right now. Get your hope on. God says, I know. I know the plans I have for you. I have given you this. This is your purpose in life. And, and, and I don't want to just skate by this. Do you understand the magnitude of the reality That God made you on purpose. I think it's it's such an underlying foundational fact of existence that a lot of times we don't even think about it. But the Bible tells us in Psalm 139 that God knew us before he knit us together in our mother's womb. That means this, that before two cells came together and began to multiply that became four, that then became eight, that then became 16, that then became 32. That's all the math I'm going to (laughs) do. God knew you. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of everything, decided in his perfect sovereign will that the world needed a you. That is staggering to me, that you were created On purpose. Not only that you were created on purpose, but you were created with a purpose. This goes to the core of who you are. This goes to the soul that God has endowed you with. And if I can, just as a brief aside, just real quickly, that's where we're going over the next few weeks. Next week, we're going to start a teaching series called Identity Identity that looks at who God has created us to be. What does God say? about who we are and to do that we're going to look at identity through the lens of the life of Moses. We're going to study the book of Exodus over the next few weeks together as a church as it relates to and as it enlightens us to our identity in Christ. Amen. Everybody's so excited about it. They can't even contain themselves. But that's next week. You are created on purpose. You are created with a purpose. And the fact that you're created with a purpose actually leads to the second handle for hope, a path. There is a path for you to walk. Now, your path is going to be different than mine. My path will be different than yours. And part of how we hang on to hope is that we collaborate with God and each other to find that path. Proverbs chapter 3, what does it say? In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct you. Your path. In everything that you do, acknowledge him. Where are we going for Easter brunch? Acknowledge him. Who am I going to marry? Acknowledge him. Who am I going to date? Well, my wife, but I'm going to acknowledge him as I date my wife. In everything you do, acknowledge him. This is your path. You know, I'm, I'm not a, a, a real good detail person at all. I, I, I can do it. Like, Julie and I have financial meetings as a family, and I participate in financial meetings here at the church. But afterwards, I'm exhausted. They just wear me slap out. I love big picture stuff. I love dreaming. I, I like, that's, that's kind of my personality. But one of the great ironies of my life that has a bad detail is I'm really good with direction. I have a great sense of direction. I don't know why that is, but, it, but it's just, that's just something that I do really well. Well, Julie and I had been married for just a few months. We were living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and when the State Fair of Texas was getting ready to open up, we said, you know what, we're going to save all of our entertainment dollars for a few weeks, and we're going to go to the State Fair of Texas and just do whatever we feel like doing. We're going to eat fried Twinkies, we're going to ride the rides, we're going to do If something strikes our fancy, we're just going to do it. And so the day came when we were going to the State Fair of Texas, we were driving from the west side of Dallas over to the State Fair, which is kind of in central Dallas. and As we got into downtown Dallas, the traffic started to really back up. And I, I do not do traffic well. I'm not patient, I don't like it. I'm, so I'd rather be moving and go a longer way, but still moving and get there. Anybody else like that? Spiritual Giants, all of you, thank you very much. Well, when we exited, Julie goes, oh, what street are you looking for? I was like, street? We're, just, we're going to the fair. She goes, well, honey, I know that, but you got off of the freeway. What street are we looking for to turn to get to the, to the fair? I go, I don't know. We're just going to keep moving. She goes, okay. And, and we hadn't been married a long time at all, so bless her heart, she's trying to figure out how this works and, like, how does she say you're out of your mind without saying you're out of your mind. And She goes, okay, but, like, what street? I go, honey, I really don't know what street, but I know where I'm going. She goes, excuse me? I said, no, I know where I'm going because we're we're going that direction. She goes, what what is that direction? And just above the tree line, you can see the Ferris wheel at the state fairgrounds. I go, I'm going that way. Now, in fairness, we did have to take a couple of little detours because I took some dead end streets, but that's not the point of the story. I kept moving toward the Ferris wheel. And as long as I kept moving toward the Ferris wheel, we were getting closer. And closer to our destination. You ever take any dead-end streets? (laughs) Anybody here ever, ever made some choices that you wish turned right when you should have gone left, left when you should have gone right? When you walk a path with God, and you acknowledge Him in all your ways, you may make the wrong decision. But in God's economy, there is no wasted movement. There is nothing to be wasted. This is what it means when the Bible says God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Called according to His purpose is the path that you walk. You're going to make mistakes. You're still a human being even when you're walking with Christ. But at least you're walking with someone who can get you out of the mistake. Keep moving toward the Ferris wheel. Keep walking the path. If you get off of the path, get back on the path. You've got this purpose. You've got this path. But, but there's one more thing that, that Paul mentions there in Ephesians 1, and it's so important, and it's power. Power. Look at what he said. He said he's given you this confident hope to those he has called, and I want you to know the incredible greatness of God's power for us. God's power. Man, I'll be honest with you. I can get to the end of my power pretty quickly. I, I really, really can. But when you understand that living in a relationship with Christ puts you in partnership with the power of God, whew, that, that, that's a different deal altogether. I, I referenced there Matthew 6 13. It's the end of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus prays, For thine is the kingdom and the glory, and the power forever. Remember, we, we said just a few minutes ago that sometimes hope can be hard. And these handles, man, you, you keep holding on to these handles, they help. But I, I have to tell you, when I said that hope is hard sometimes, it wasn't something that I read in a book. Sometimes hope is hard for me. I, I will tell you, The single greatest spiritual challenge of my life is worry. It's it's being anxious. And I I can get there in a hurry. I I didn't used to, this didn't used to be the case. I've I've got other spiritual challenges, you know. I mean, but this is number one. I can get wrapped around the axle of anxious so fast. I worry. But when I worry, I come back to this power of God. The word power in the Greek New Testament, the the Greek that the New Testament was written in, that's the word dunamis, dunamis. It's the same word that we get dynamite from. So you've got this this dunamis power from God, this power that raised Christ from the dead, This, this power that left the tomb empty. Paul says is available To every single one of us. And when I get wrapped around the axle of anxious, I come back to that and I remember, oh yeah, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. What in my life is beyond the scope of his hope? What can he not handle in my life or in your life? If he raised him from the dead, and by the way, he raised him from the dead. There is nothing that he can't handle. You know, over the years, people have put forth some theories that said maybe Jesus didn't actually die. One of these is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory essentially says that he passed out from pain, from exhaustion after hanging on the cross. And it's an interesting theory, but it really betrays a gross misunderstanding of history. The Roman Empire were expert in how to kill people that's one of the things they did. That was why they became an empire. If you disagreed with them, they kill you. And they were great at it. That's why crucifixion was a public spectacle. They wanted the population to see what happened to those who defied Roman authority. And the way that you die in crucifixion is you die by suffocation. Because hanging on that cross, you have to lift yourself up to catch a breath. But after a few hours of doing that, you become exhausted and you can no longer, you can no longer catch your breath. And so you just slowly die by asphyxiation. So when Jesus was laid in the tomb, ladies and gentlemen, he was absolutely dead. Now, that's the the physical, biological fact. The spiritual fact. Is that he died because he became your sin and my sin. It was my sin that put him on the cross. Your sin. Our innate, inherent desire to determine our own destiny, to chart our own course, that is why he went to the cross. That put him on the cross. But can I tell you this? It was love that kept him on the cross. It wasn't the nails. Jesus, as the Son of God, could have fought a million angels to rescue him, and they'd have been there in a heartbeat because they are subject to his authority. But he chose to stay there because he loves you that much. Sin put him there, but love kept him there. That's the reality of the resurrection. Because when Jesus died and was laid in that borrowed tomb, he did what we couldn't have done for ourselves. And he rose from the dead. And it's in his resurrection that we have hope. It's in his resurrection that we never never have to get to the end of our hope rope. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself did. There on the cross, He uttered this word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was because he had become our sin. When Jesus became our sin, even though he was still the son of God, a holy, morally flawless God could have nothing to do with the sin that he took on himself at that point. And so in that moment, he was estranged from God the Father laid in a tomb, but when he arose, when he arose, he arose with the promise of new life for anyone who would believe him. Look at what Paul said. He said, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. Notice he didn't say for those who believe in him. There's a massive difference between believing in him and believing him. Believing in him just says, oh, yeah, he existed, he lived. Okay, I believe in that. But to believe him means that we have, in fact, placed all of our hope in the resurrection. That we have chosen to follow him, to trust him more than we trust ourselves, more than we trust the world, more than we trust culture or popular fad beliefs. We trust in the Ancient of Days. We trust the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we walk in relationship with him. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment, but it's a sacred moment. Here in this Easter weekend, I just want to ask you a very, very pointed question. Have you chosen to believe him? Have you personally, definitively chosen to believe him? To believe him for the forgiveness of your sin? To believe him for the hope of your life? If you haven't, then we would love to give you the opportunity to do it right now. To take that step of commitment, that step of faith, and enter a relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's you, then just pray. You may be here in the room, you may be watching online, but pray, just talk to to God's heart from your own heart silently and just say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you, all of it. I'm not holding anything back because you know it all anyway. But I confess it to you in order to be forgiven by you. And Lord, in this moment, in exchange for your life, I will give you my life. I believe you. I will follow you. from this moment forward. And I pray this prayer in your name. If you would, I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for another moment. But if that was your prayer, I want to make sure you understand this is the greatest moment of your life. And as a church, we want to be able to help with the moments that follow. So I want to ask you just a couple of things. Number one, if you would, let us know that you just made that commitment to Christ. You can use the QR card that Jordan and Kaylee mentioned earlier in the service. If you're watching online, there's a place for you to indicate I'm committing my life to Christ today. And all that does is it, it begins a conversation that proceeds at whatever pace works for you just about what's next. And then the second thing that we would just ask of you, if you would, as our heads are bowed for another moment, if you just prayed to commit your life to Christ, would you quietly but unmistakably raise your hand, just raise your hand and hold it up in the air for a moment, just as a statement physically of the commitment spiritually that you just made and know that As a family of faith, we honor that and celebrate that with you. And our family tradition around here is, as you go ahead and put your hands down, we're going to put our hands together. and tell you, welcome home.